You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. You can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Hello, hello. I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus, and today's episode is the final part of our New Coke's or the Atomic Edition series. It has been, you know, one of these, one of these series that I look back on and you know, if there is required reading, quote unquote, to kind of understand some of the concepts of even where, you know, where I'm coming from as a writer and a, a historian, it's, I think this is really one of the most important articles to read, to understand truly the depths of the lies, the depths of how far, how far reaching, how long this chain actually goes. And so, Part three of the Atomic Edition series, uh, mini-series, I guess, within the Coincidence Zone series, it, you know, sometimes when I write these articles, I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going to go. I mean, most of the time, right? (laughs) It would not be a, it's not like jazz up here. I have, you know, I have an idea of where I want to go and points I want to make and, you know, information that I want to bring up that I think is relevant and pertinent to the topic at hand. And then sometimes as you're exploring and going down, you know, this rabbit trail and that rabbit trail, you, you know, you stumble upon things, right? And you start looking at events and history in a very different light. And so I had always really enjoyed Japanese history, a huge fan of Japanese history, Uh, you know, the samurai in general, uh, I think, you know, compared to the knight, right? They are... You know, two of the idea of of chivalry and bushido, they're very similar concepts. Uh, there's like a lot of similarities, and uh, there's a lot of historical. There's just a lot of interesting parallels between the two, you know. And so, I think for a variety of reasons, I've always been very fascinated by the samurai and the samurai nation. And so, you know, and that definitely helped inform the writing of this article. You know, this series. Uh, and as I was going through it and, and really trying to, you know, assemble uh, this puzzle, as it were, you know, you find, you go back and you look at some of the, some of the events in a new light. And so the Meiji Revolution or the Meiji Revolt shows up quite a bit uh, in, you know, in a lot of these narratives leading up to World War II, the assuming of of power by the Japanese military dictatorship and, you know, eventually where we, we lead off and America eventually becomes involved in that fray. I won't go over all that again. I've written on it before, see part two for, you know, a more in-depth discussion on that particular topic. But regardless, it is something now as I have studied some of these issues truly in a much more in-depth light and from a much more critical light, right? Like, okay, well, you're saying this, but actually, what can we prove? And when you go back and look at some of the events surrounding the Meiji Revolution, as I look back, you know, as I looked back on them, uh, of the writing of this article, it was, it really stood out to me. It was quite stunning. So, yeah, I did not originally intend to include a history of Japanese masonry and its involvement, intimate involvement with the Meiji Revolution. Uh, that's definitely not what I set out to, to write this article about, but that's where the, you know, the story went, right? Because as I looked back, it is astounding, astounding how 
consistent the track pattern is with these people. That being the bankers, the mystery religion, the regime, whatever tag you want to put on it. Whoever you want to ascribe the blame to, it is a track pattern that is evinced over and over and over again. It's unmistakable. And so what we see in the Meiji Revolution, which is without a doubt a Masonic revolution, we see the same track pattern as so many other Masonic revolutions. It's remarkable, <laughs> truly remarkable. You know, I am. It never ceases to amaze me how you can see just a the same exact track pattern here. I mean, what am I talking about? I'm talking about an infiltration of a country via Masonic lodges and covert allegiances, the co-opting of the nation's elite. The introduction of chaos and regime change into, you know, which you may claim tyrannical regimes, perhaps, right? Despotic regimes, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, we're talking about forms of government, government and governance that have been in effect for hundreds of years. We are talking about utterly abandoning and untethering ourselves from any kind of social order. And I do not think that's a road that should be traveled upon. You know, it is a people. It, the cavalier attitude with which the conspirators have gone into countries and have tossed aside centuries and millennia of cultural practices. And I'm not, you know, in favor of every, I'm not, I'm not in favor of most cultural practices, just to be honest with you. But <laughs> uh, that doesn't change the fact that these are. These are momentous changes, huge changes that are being undertaken by a very focused group of people, a very small club. And we see the hidden hand of masonry once again within the Meiji Revolution. I mean, countless masons within not just the Japanese side, but also on the European side. We see the introduction of these lodges very quickly. The revolution breaks out. The king, some say, is assassinated. I think that, you know, the evidence for that is circumstantial, admittedly. But I think a theory that has to think that these things don't happen, it obviously is naive. And the timing of it all is so fortuitous. It really beggars belief. I mean, either that this is right, yet another one of these just men. That's some lucky coincidence. I mean, perhaps these things do happen, right? There are natural deaths that sometimes occur to young uh, lieges and uh, rulers, but I don't think that's the norm. And what we see in the Meiji Revolution is just, you know, <laughs> you can chalk it up to coincidence. I don't, and I won't, and I refuse to, particularly after the body of evidence that has been assembled. Uh, by so many other historians, and I've just done my small part really here compiling some of this stuff. The groundwork has been done by so many other great intellectual titans throughout history. And, I mean, we, we are only standing on their shoulders. You know, it's, it's thanks, to, thanks to so many of these historians, and frankly, you know, <laughs> I just have to give a little tip of my hat to the Masons themselves. Because so much of this information, it would not be possible to compile without their assistance. So, we will uh, go a little bit in further uh, in depth here into the further research, some of the sources and other topics, so if you want to explore uh, these issues further. Yeah, just, you know, at the top, get out of the way. Once again, Hiroshima Revisited by Dr. Michael Palmer and Death Object by Akio Nakatani. If you have not read these, you you need you must read them, okay? You're like, oh, I don't read books. I don't care. You need to read them. Uh, truly, so you can see with your own eyes, right, how much you are being lied to. Um, the logic is pretty inescapable. And when it's broken down from this critical lens, you know, it's impossible to, uh, it's really impossible to dispute. So, the last I'll be talking about those books for the series, but man, can't recommend them enough.
And then next up here, we have a couple of pieces on Freemasonry. So the first is Freemasonry in Japan by Pauline Chekmakjian, and that's from uh, some bio biographical portraits, a magazine. And so a scholarly look at the history of Freemasonry in Japan. Um, I mean, there's there's a great deal of scholarship and other historical works on Freemasonry. You know, I mean, it's like such an old fraternity and you know, coincidentally, uh, so many of its members are just uh, in the highest levers of power. So just, I mean, if you are writing about history and you're not writing about all these allegiances, covert allegiances that these men have, I mean, I don't even, you know, just a fact, right? Just like, just a historical fact, you know? You don't even have to ascribe any kind of particular nefarious motive but like not to not include it is to not include a vital aspect of context and now as we look you know as the pattern continues to bring itself forward here i think you know we're beyond <laughs> beyond the realm of coincidence obviously for some of this stuff but in the facts just really speak for themselves right and so uh this piece freemasonry in japan highly recommend it uh, it's a little bit difficult to you know find you got to go through uh some academic institutions and whatnot to get yours, but a good, good resource nonetheless. And uh, the next one here, Anti-Masonry in Japan, Past, Present, uh, by Brother Yoshio Washizu, so a Japanese mason here. And he, like so many Freemason historians, are playing somewhat fast and loose with the facts uh, they are more than willing to take credit for a lot of the positive aspects, right? Um, and they will talk about, oh yes, and how we suffered so horribly at the, uh, you know, the hands of the the military dictatorship under, uh, you know, in Japan, right, in the lead up to World War II, the crackdown on uh, overt masonry. But here's where the Masons are always just so dishonest and are talking, you know, are not giving you the full set of facts. And so, yes, there are these crackdowns and attacks on the overt masonry, okay, the lower levels of masonry. But all the higher level people, nothing happens to them. They remain totally unmolested. And in fact, the leader of the Philippines, that leader that the Japanese insult, he was a practicing Freemason in the Grand Lodge of the, Phil of the Philippines. So we have a practicing Mason as the head of one of the Japanese military dictatorships. I mean, just give me a break, man, right? Like, yeah, they're more than happy to crack down on the little people, dude. I mean, it's the same thing. Look at the cartels, right? Which these people are. The oldest cartel. Okay, well, they're more than willing to throw some, like, small, some small fries to the cops, right? They're more than willing to allow a certain percentage of their product to be intercepted. So that the people can say, oh, hey, yeah, we're, we're fighting the war on drugs. We're, we're winning, actually. We arrested XYZ. And meanwhile, you know, the drug problem is worse than it's ever been, despite the cops and the government spending more money than they ever have on this problem. So in a very similar fashion, right, they are more than willing to sacrifice the lower people on the totem pole so that the entity as a whole might survive. You know, this is not not a difficult concept to understand and one, again, that we see over and over and over again. Uh, I don't know why, you know, oh, <laughs> if you're not looking at it, I mean, this is a, again, a criminal cartel. Once you start analyzing history through that lens of like a forensic investigator, honestly, uh, particularly when it, it involves the mystery religion and, and topics of this nature, I think it's, it's a... Uh, it's really helped elucidate some of these seeming incongruent actions, right? That historians have, you know, other historians, mainstream historians have touted as, oh, hey, well, you know, this means this, right? And, uh, oh, yeah, well, they cracked down on masonry, so I guess they were anti-masonry. Well, I mean, that's not, not necessarily the truth here or the inference that you can take, right? So... Just my two cents on that subject here. So, um, 
for some other great books here, we have Meiji 1868, Revolution and Counter-Revolution in Japan by Paul Akamatsu, um, a great historical look at the Meiji Revolution, um, going into depth about, you know, some of the, you know, the lead up and the, you know, not covering so much the Masonic aspect of it, um, but uh, still a with that information in light, you know, knowing that information, then reading the book, you know, with that lens in mind, it's still, it's a fascinating look back at, you know, so many of the social issues that are used, I mean, time and time again, really, to foment the populace, to whip the populace up into uh, outrage against their rulers, um, economics, uh, class warfare, probably the oldest tactic we see it. Yet again, during the Meiji Revolution, which Meiji, just Japanese for enlightened rule, right? <laughs> Not exactly hiding. Who is the enlightened ones uh, behind this, uh, this new regime? I mean, you can't, can't say they didn't tell us, you know? Can't say they, can't say they didn't tell us. They are more than willing to tell us uh, what exactly is the spirit behind these things. And then next up, we have Japanese Banking, A History, 1859 to 1959. And again, as part of all these Masonic revolts, uh, banking is a critical aspect of it. And so, yeah, a very academic book, a dry book, um, admittedly. <laughs> but uh, very fascinating to look at the, you know, you see the lead up of and generally how these regimes handled currency, hard metals, typically silver, gold. Um, and you see during the, you know, the Masonic Revolt of 1868 that banking is always central to, central to the new forms of government and the centralization, you know, excuse me, centralization of banking within the hands of the government, also another key aspect of this, right? Uh, so we see that in America, honestly, not too long after the Constitution is ratified, we have the bank of the United States, the first one being instituted. Uh, this, despite Congress being given, you know, uh, the Constitution gives Congress the ability to uh, regulate currency. So, and a total abdication of their powers, I mean, a topic for another day, and, and you know, one I've discussed uh, in some other pieces, but truly just, you know, you see it in America, you see it in England, you see it in France, you see it in Japan here, you see it in Russia over and over and over and over again. It's really impossible to miss. It's impossible to miss. And one that the banking and the financial aspect is a, is a critical aspect of, of all of these revolts. You know, it's, it's inescapable. And so, yes, this book by Mr. Tamaki, a, a pretty, you know, in-depth, very in-depth <laughs> look at the history of Japanese banking and monetary policy. But for those interested in these topics, uh, one I highly recommend. And then lastly, for our books here, we have uh, The East India Company, Trade and Conquest from 1600 by Anthony Wilde. And yeah, didn't think, uh, I mean, eventually these people are going to make a, a appearance in my writings, uh, just because the East India Company, the British East India Company, and uh, you know various other uh, countries had uh, versions of the East India Company, um, it is one that's inescapable because it's a is a fact pattern. It is a type, an archetype, if you will, of what we see in the modern day, and the corporations are really not that far off. I mean, we're only you know, years away at this point from like Amazon getting their own private army. <laughs> uh, it is something that has happened before. And the, the way things are trending just economically, uh, politically speaking, uh, the, the odds of private corporations having militaries and having these forces, once again, it's, I mean, it may seem somewhat outlandish at first to speculate on these things. I don't know why, again, because we have a pretty long history of these things, the, the marrying of uh, this financial and military power together. 
in the service to the state. I mean, that's absolutely. We're seeing a flavor of that now. We've seen a flavor of that, right? With this entire COVID, uh, all that shenanigans, uh, the uh, just repeated crimes that we've seen committed across the world. Again, I mean, this is one of the things, one of the topics. I mean, it's, I don't know how you can say, I don't know how some people can really pretend at this point that we are trying to stop the new world order from taking control, right? Or one world governance or whatever you want to call it. I mean, if you are trying to fight the new world order, you must admit that they have largely already taken control. I mean, I'm not, build back better. That wasn't just like a slogan, right? A bunch of countries and they weren't just like, oh, hey, wow, that's a really cool slogan. Let's all copy it. Clearly a calculated, very calculated plan. The COVID policies from, I mean, from Russia to America to Great Britain, I mean, there was minor differences, but for the most part, and particularly at the outset, almost, I mean, not a diamond difference in most places. I mean, I can attest to this. Uh, during COVID, I was living in a, you know, one of the more major cities of Florida. And for all this talk about how, oh, Florida was like the freest state in America, dude, this city, there was not a dime of difference between this city and like Boston, Massachusetts or New York. Constantly harassed for masks and businesses treating you like a criminal if you don't want to breathe, you know, air unmolested, which now we know all sorts of long-term problems. I mean, particularly for the elderly. For all this talk of, oh, we were trying to help the elderly. I mean, there was a study that came out, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, showed a 20 point drop in IQ for those 60 and up that has not been recovered and probably will not be recovered. Permanent brain damage from masks, from isolation, from, you know, not, you know, no stimulation, right? Being, sit inside your house, surf on the internet, watch. CNN or Fox News or pick your poison literally become a vegetable. It's just it's insane. So yeah, the New World Order is already here, right? They've already taken control. We largely I mean, we're just putting up the finishing touches here, really. And that doesn't mean the, that it's all over, right? I, I vehemently disagree with that. But the trap door is and it is getting close to shutting. It's getting real close. And yep, corporations like the East India Company, huge part of how we got where we are now and a model for what I believe we're going to see in the future once again. So, the East India Company, Trade and Conquest from 1600, highly recommend it. Uh, and then lastly here we have uh, the Hiroshima Myth by John V. Denson, writing for the uh, Mises Institute. And, you know, I'm going to pair this uh, with also Ward Wilson, The Myth of Hiroshima by The Agenda, TVO Today. And so both of these topics are, um, you know, the Hiroshima Myth, the Myth of Hiroshima, and both of these, you know, the latter being a video, they both touch on and discuss really how the atom bomb it's been labeled it's been talked about as like oh this was this is how we brought japan to its knees right you know truman i you know i think quoting and and from peace too talking about how we brought the power of the sun to those who brought war to the you know to the far east i mean just outlandish bombastic apocalyptic talk but when you go and look again at the actual historical record the idea that, I mean, the Japanese just did not treat these weapons very seriously at the beginning. That's just a fact. Um, and it's only after the United States has you know, assumed military control of Japan that you start seeing these weapons being treated in a more serious manner. That's not to say there wasn't uh, serious death and destruction, right? And there's all sorts of anomalies that you know, I addressed in-depth the medical anomalies in, in part two of this series, but that does not change the fact that the amount of destruction and death that they caused was 
very in line with previous weapon systems such as napalm. And so the Japanese really were not... If you still subscribe to the chaos theory of history that events are not planned, that regimes are not planned, that there is not collusion at the highest levels of governance, I don't agree with that theory. (laughs) But even if you subscribe to that theory, what you have to admit, right, is that it was not dropping of the bombs that did it. Because there are many, many days afterwards where Japan does not surrender after the bombs have been dropped. And it's not until the Russians declare war and that they're going to invade that we see I mean, within 24 hours, Japan capitulates and surrenders. And so, yeah, this uh, historian here, Ward Wilson and uh, John V. Denson for the Mises Institute, very, very great pieces going more in-depth about this. And again, it's not seriously debatable, honestly. And Americans at the time will admit this. You know, there's been, there's a myth that has been built around the nuclear weapon and the nuclear bomb, which at the inception of this weapon, it's the propagators of some of this stuff were willing to admit. They were willing to admit it. That, yeah, these things are not as bad as what we are telling people, but we want to create this idea in their mind that this is a doomsday weapon. Never to ever be used again, right? Well, that's, a, that's been a very, very intentional psychological play and, and not even seriously debatable, right? You know, what's the idea behind it? What's the, what's the goal? Well, one world governance has been the goal. That's been the ultimate objective, like all these psyops. Yeah, just another, just another coincidence, right? I need, I need my own little coincidence jar like uh, George Hobbs here, right? Drop another little coin there in the jar. Yeah, but <laughs> definitely, uh, this has been one of the more freewheeling, uh, you know, articles or essays that I've written. But uh, I think once we get to the end here, you'll realize how all these disparate threads that you seemingly thought were unrelated, well, actually, they're crucially uh, integrally related. Um, and I think that's the job of really that's the job of any historian to do and to accomplish and. Uh, yeah, up to you to decide whether I accomplish that goal. But without further ado here, I'm going to be reading from my June 27th, 2023 article, the last in this mini-series, The Coincidence Zone, Atomic Edition, Part 3. Masonry ought forever to be abolished. It is wrong, essentially wrong a seed of evil which can never produce any good. President John Quincy Adams Letters on Freemasonry End quote. Secret societies have been a pernicious blight upon civilization since mankind's earliest days. Any civilization is naturally built upon trust, which the occultists, by their very nature, abuse and subvert through their covert allegiances. By creed, the goals of the organization comes before that of any individual or nation. The mystery religion and its voluminous offshoots, such as Freemasonry, have toiled inexorably to advance their agenda of worldwide rule by the so-called enlightened quote-unquote elite. Their flowery language conceals a much darker purpose, and mass rituals such as September 11th, the JFK assassination, or Hiroshima and Nagasaki are integral to achieving that purpose. As Cicero warned us two millennia ago, a nation's true threat is the traitorous elements within it, ever looking to sink a knife in their nation's back while they cloak their misdeeds in flowery talk of brotherhood, truth, and enlightenment. Properly understand how we arrived at this spiritual and cultural crucible, we must necessarily retrace the steps that have led us to the precipice of digital slavery. 
The true roots of our story go back to the turn of the 19th century, when the moneyed interests set their avaricious gaze upon Japan. The first Freemason to visit Japan was a Dutchman, Isaac Titsing, in 1799. Isaac Titsing had become Brother Titsing in 1792, and joining the Freemasons shortly after being hired by the Dutch East India Company, the DEIC. In his capacity as a Dutch ambassador and high-ranking official within the DEIC, he would make three separate trips to Nippon. During Titsing's time in the Far East, he would work closely with the British East India Company, a BEIC, and its Governor General, Lord Charles Cornwallis, a fellow Freemason and the former commander of the British forces in the First Revolutionary War. State enterprises such as the DEIC and BEIC are, quote, large, complex economic organizations owned and operated by government, end quote. Like its British counterpart, the DEIC was among the first corporations that fused corporate interests directly with state power during the turn of the 17th century. These entities had many of the trappings of a private corporation, yet they ultimately served the goals of the state. State enterprises were hydras, with their own armies, intelligence networks, navies, and governing bodies. If they dealt in death, drugs, slaves, and bullion at an unprecedented level. At its height, the BEIC had twice as many troops as the British Army. State enterprises were effectively governments within a government, a shadow empire. They used commerce as a disguise to worm its way into opposing societies. The monopolistic power that these entities wielded were among the chief reasons why the American colonists rebelled against British misrule. By the 1830s, both the Rothschilds and Sassoons had also established successful mercantile operations through their agents in Nagasaki and Yokohama. The necrotic forces of international capital had begun to worm their way into Japan. Pictured is Lord Charles Cornwallis, the first Marquess Cornwallis, former colonel of the 33rd Regiment of Foot, governor general of the East India Company, and a Freemason. For hundreds of years, Japan had enforced a rigorous isolation policy, forbidding its citizens from leaving and foreigners from entering, under pain of death. And the only exceptions to this were the limited trade they conducted with the Chinese, the Portuguese, and the Dutch, through the port city of Nagasaki. In 1853, Commodore Matthew C. Perry, yet another Freemason, led four U.S. Navy warships into Edo, now Tokyo, harbor. Politically outmaneuvered and desperately outgunned, the Tokugawa shogunate was reluctantly pressured into opening Japan's borders. A fatal mistake, as the shogun and emperor would soon learn. According to French Masonic traditions, the first French lodge was founded by English military exiles in 1688. As Napoleon's army spread like a cancer throughout Europe, so too did masonry sprout forth its foul roots. These traveling-slash-informal lodges were extraordinarily common within masonry, especially amongst military members of the colonial European powers. This is true for Japan as well, when the first traveling lodge came to the country in 1863. Quote, Sphinx Lodge No. 263 was a traveling military lodge associated with the 2nd Battalion of the Lancashire Fusiliers and warranted by the Grand Lodge of Ireland. From 1865 onwards, permission was given for other British lodges to be formed in cities such as Yokohama, Kobe, and Osaka, which, under the terms of the 1858 treaties, ports where Britain had extraterritorial rights. The first lodge founded on the English Constitution was Yokohama Lodge No. 1092, which held its first meeting on the 26th of June, 
1866. Pauline Chakmakjian from Freemasonry in Japan. End quote. While joining Freemasonry was technically illegal for Japanese citizens, the Tokugawa shogunate agreed to allow lodges in the country so long as only foreigners were members. This arrangement was colloquially known as the Gentleman's Agreement. It would last from 1858 until the pre-World War II crackdown on overt masonry. This, of course, in no way prevented Japanese citizens from joining a lodge or associating with its members. Many simply went overseas and joined the various Grand Lodges of Europe. This is true of the influential Meiji politicians Nishi Yamane and Baron Suda Mamichi, both of whom were inducted into the Grand Orient of the Netherlands in 1864 while at university. Pictured as Commodore Matthew Calbraith Perry, and Brother Perry was initiated into the Holland Lodge No. 8, New York, New York, in 1819. On January 30, 1867, Emperor Komei died at the ripe age of 36 years old. As the British diplomat Sir Ernest Satow poignantly said, quote, It is impossible to deny that the emperor's disappearance from the political scene, leaving as his successor a boy of 15 or 16, was most opportune. End quote. Among the first to pounce on this fortuitous quote-unquote opportunity was Sakamoto Ryoma, a merchant, a samurai, and a vocal advocate of Western-style democracy. He was also likely among the first Japanese Freemasons inducted into this fraternity on his home soil. Ryoma served as a pivotal force within the budding Meiji Revolution, brokering the deal that ultimately led to the resignation of the shogun. Ryoma's assassination in 1867 at the hand of the shogun's secret police would serve as the final straw that tipped the scales of public support in the revolution's favor. The parallels between Ryoma and Nathan Hale are striking. Two Masonic martyrs whose deaths helped spark a revolution. The word Meiji means enlightened rule in the Japanese tongue, surely revealing the true character of this enlightened quote-unquote revolution. Like so many other Masonic revolts, such as France, Haiti, Mexico, or Russia, hollow promises of representation and equality are sold to the feudal peoples of Japan in order to win popular support. The Mirokusha, or the Meiji Six, of which Nishi Amane and Baron Mamichi were both founding members, helped to spread Western, i.e. Masonic, philosophy throughout Japan. Both men were very influential in the Meiji Revolution, serving as high-ranking government officials within the new regime. Like so many other revolutions of the past three centuries, Freemasons had played pivotal roles within the plot to depose the Japanese monarchy and they served as the key intellectual vanguard that stirred discontent against the Tokugawa shogunate. The centuries-old dynastic rule of the Tokugawa family had been stuffed out a mere 15 years after opening their borders to masonry's corrosive influence. Just one year after the first Japanese lodge was formally established, the Meiji Revolution was unleashed. Pictured as the Meiji revolutionaries, the founding fathers of modern Japan. And then pictured below is Sakamoto Ryoma, samurai, merchant, martyr, mason. Like the French Revolution before it, traditional Japanese customs and timekeeping was tossed aside in order to conform with the rest of the civilized world, quote-unquote. Japan was forced to modernize, and its ancient traditions were discarded in the face of scientific progress. The Meiji Sixth and other Masonic intellectuals were critical in this effort to destroy ancient Japanese culture in order to modernize the feudal nation, including foreign Masons such as, quote, Brother E. Fisher, 
a German merchant involved in the development of Kobe. Brother William G. Aston, a well-known British authority on Japan. Brother A. Kirby, who built the first ironclad warship in Japan. Brother Thomas W. Kinder, a Briton who was in charge of the Mint Bureau in Osaka. Brother John R. Black, a British journalist who published an English-language newspaper, the Japan Gazette, in Japanese-language newspapers, and Nishin Shinjisi and Bonkoku Shimbun, and wrote an important book, Young Japan. Brother William H. Stone, a British telecommunications engineer. Brother Paul Sarda, a French architect. Brother Edward H. Hunter, a British shipbuilding engineer. Brother John Marshall, a British port captain. And Brother Stuart Eldridge, an American doctor. Yoshio Washizu, from Entai Masonry in Japan. End quote. After 15 years of political turmoil, high-profile assassinations, and general chaos, the Japanese constitution was finally ratified. With it, the central government had finally cemented its monopolistic stranglehold on the issuance of currency. On October 10, 1882, the Bank of Japan was established, and thus the true goal of this Masonic revolution was realized not to bring freedom or enlightenment, but financial slavery. Instead of an enlightened democracy, quote-unquote, Meiji rule was much of the same, just with democratic window dressings and the veneer of populism to hide a fundamentally oligarchical regime. Yet another nation in bondage to usury via fiat currency. Freemasons have maintained their stranglehold of the samurai nation to this day. Indeed, the occupation of Japan by Allied forces began a renaissance of masonry within the country. This should come as no surprise, as General Douglas MacArthur and General John Northcutt, the American and British commanders of the occupying forces in Japan, were both masons themselves. On May 1st, 1957, the Grand Lodge of Japan was formally established. While the open practice of masonry was abolished during the war, masons continued to hold positions of high authority in the Japanese regime. Jose P. Laurel, the president of the Japanese puppet regime in the Philippines, was an active member of the Grand Lodge of the Philippines during the war. Prince Naruhiku Higashikuni who served a brief stint as Prime Minister in 1945, was initiated in 1950. Ichiro Hatoyama, the Prime Minister from 1954 to 1956, joined the Tokyo Lodge number 125 PC in 1951. Japanese historian Ota Ryu states that, quote, every Prime Minister since the surrender of Japan, quote, has been a member of the mystery religion of Babylon, a.k.a. Freemasonry. That would include Shinzo Abe, the now-deceased prime minister and former ally of Donald Trump, who can be spotted engaging in numerous Masonic handshakes, just a few of which are included below. Japan was more than willing to participate in the nuclear hoax because their government had been subservient to the mystery religion long before the first firebombs were ever dropped. Pictured as a series of Masonic grips and handshakes from Duncan's Masonic ritual. Then below is Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and President Donald Trump engaging in a Masonic handshake. And then finally, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and Ambassador Caroline Kennedy also engaging in a Masonic handshake. Quote, After the Meiji Restoration in 1868, Japan adopted an expansionist and colonial attitude towards its neighbors. It sought to identify itself with the West and looked down upon the Asian continent as backward and inferior. For most of the next 70 years, Japan was at war, mainly with its neighbors. Martin Jacques, 
End quote. We know that Japan was not taken in by this deception for several reasons. Firstly, early observers such as General Shunroku Hata had clearly noted the survival of concrete buildings and general damage patterns in line with previous firebombings. Secondly, the usage of gas bombs and cluster bombing was discussed almost immediately after the attack by both the survivors and the Japanese government. As soon as the day afterwards, survivors noted the telltale effects of mustard gas, which Hiroshima physician Dr. Hachiya notes in his diary. Quote, and did the new weapon I had heard about throw off a poison gas or perhaps some deadly germ? End quote. The medical literature cited in Part 2 is entirely consistent with mustard gas and napalm exposure, a fact which cannot be said for the atom bomb. The same story of poisonous gas is repeated by numerous survivors of the attacks. Quote, Tokiko Wada but Grandpa had breathed poisonous gas when the atom bomb fell, and he got sick and went to the hospital. He died one night a little later, and we had a funeral for him. Satomi Kanakuni On August 6th, when the bomb fell, father and mother were living in Yanagi-machi, and they were trapped by the house when it fell down and inhaled poisonous gas. Junya Kojima when I was five years old, there was the atom bomb explosion. My father was at his office then. I guess he breathed in poisonous gas. He soon died. Yoko Kuwabara Just then I was blinded for a moment by piercing flash of bright light and the air filled with yellow smoke like poison gas. Yoshiaka Wada My mother breathe the poison gas from the atom bomb. That's why she was so bad. End quote. On August 13th, just two days before Japan's surrender, Emperor Hirohito stated that, quote, the most popular explanation for the wound seen at Hiroshima was still that some poison gas had been liberated and was still rising from the ruins. End quote. This atomic gas phenomenon is discussed quite frequently in Japanese literature on the attacks. It is only after the U.S. occupation, when a rigorous censorship policy went into effect, that these reports were dismissed as the simple after-effects of radiation. Perhaps the most salient fact pattern that validates this apparent collusion is the seeming lack of response by the Japanese government. The highest levels of the Japanese regime took nearly 36 hours finally convened together in the aftermath of the first A-bomb attack. A seemingly unfathomable response, that is, if such a devastating attack had actually been unleashed upon your nation. The response after Nagasaki is particularly muted as well, and it is not until the Soviets declared their intent to invade that we see the Emperor capitulate within 24 hours. This view was espoused by contemporary American officials. Quote, the use of the barbarous weapon at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender because of the effective sea blockade and the successful bombing with conventional weapons. My own feeling was that in being the first to use it, we'd adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the Dark Ages. I was not taught to make war in that fashion, and wars cannot be won by destroying women and children. Admiral Leahy, Chief of Staff to President Roosevelt, a 33rd degree Freemason, and President Truman, also a 33rd degree Freemason. End quote. Although Admiral Leahy touts the effectiveness of strategic bombing here, the U.S. military largely admitted in the aftermath of World War II that strategic bombing had been a failure. What is abundantly clear, however, is that the Japanese government had been willing to surrender long before the A-bombs were ever dropped, and their usage did little to sway the regime. Quote, I would call it a crime were it not that the word crime implies sin, and sin requires consciousness of guilt, 
the action taken by the United States government was in defiance of every sentiment and every conviction upon which our civilization is based. Father James M. Gullis end quote. The ever-present Rockefeller clan, a canker sore on American society, naturally make an appearance in this story. Their financial support of equally outrageous ideas such as fossil fuels, quote-unquote, or climate change, quote-unquote, should immediately raise a red flag for those still bitterly clinging to their nukes. Rockefeller grants were critical to funding the early study of this budding scientific field. One of the key figures of the Manhattan Project, Nobel Prize winner Dr. Ernest Lawrence, went so far as to say, quote, that if it hadn't been for the Rockefeller Foundation, there would have been no atom bomb, end quote. The Rockefeller Foundation also crucially funded early scientific studies into the effects of radiation. Studies that purported to show the hideous lethality of even the briefest exposure to radiation. These early studies would serve as the basis from which all nuclear scaremongering has flowed. A Detlev Bronk, the president of the National Academy of Sciences, was also a member of the Rockefeller Foundation and the Council on Foreign Relations. DNAS, as well as many other mainstream quote-unquote scientific organizations, have been willingly co-opted into one of the most grotesque scientific deceptions in human history. But hey, what else is new? The bombastic nuclear scaremongering and the physical evidence simply cannot be reconciled. Victims have survived radiation levels that should have instantly killed them. Buildings survived inside blast zones that were supposedly hotter than the sun. Bridges stood unscathed just hundreds of meters from ground zero. Either we have been deceived about the true power and effects of nuclear weapons, or we have been deceived about the true nature of what occurred in Japan that fateful August of 1945. But make no mistake, we have been deceived. What exactly were the Hiroshima-Nagasaki attacks then, if they were not a, a nuclear attack designed to crush an opponent's will? Dr. Palmer states it quite succinctly in the final chapter of his book, Hiroshima Revisited. Quote, We propose that the atomic bombings were acts of state terror, directed at the international general public. General fear of impending nuclear war should induce the people to voluntarily surrender their national sovereignty and submit to a world government. End quote. Indeed, it is quite clear from the words of the conspirators themselves what the ultimate goal of their mass ritual was. This concept is explicitly stated in a propaganda booklet disseminated by former Manhattan Project scientists titled One World or None, a report to the public on the full meaning of the atomic bomb. Quote, The issue that we have to face is not whether we can create a world government before this century is over. That appears to be very likely. The issue that we have to face is whether we can have such a world government without going through a third world war. What matters is to create at once conditions in which the ultimate establishment of a world government will appear as inevitable to most men as war appears inevitable at present to many. End quote. From the scientific realm to the financial realm, one world government is what truly drove the nuclear propaganda. Bernard Baruch, a wealthy industrialist and financial tycoon, was appointed to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission after the war. In his speech to the General Assembly, he proposed his Baruch Plan for an international ban on nuclear weapons. Baruch let slip the true impetus behind the push to outlaw nuclear weapons. Quote, We are here to make a choice between the quick and the dead. Behind the black portent of the new atomic age lies a hope which, seized upon with faith, can work our salvation. If we fail, then we have damned 
every man to be the slave of fear. End quote. Wow, how convenient. And the only way to protect ourselves from the psychopaths who unleash the power of the sun, quote unquote, is to hand over all our sovereignty to unaccountable foreign bureaucrats. Who could have seen that coming? It also doesn't hurt that the nuclear scam has drained a staggering amount of wealth from our coffers. From just 1940 to 1996, the United States spent, or rather, stole $5.5 trillion to create our alleged nuclear arsenal. Last year alone, the United States taxpayer was soaked for $35.4 billion, or nearly half of all the worldwide expenditures on nuclear weapons. That equates to about $67,000 a minute, or the equivalent of buying a 2023 Chevy Camaro every minute of every day for an entire year. Nearly a third of all the American military spending since World War II has been spent on nuclear weaponry, which represents 11% of the total U.S. government expenditures during that same 56-year time period. It is undeniable to the serious observer that mass rituals play an integral role in our societies, not just in the religious realm, but the political realm as well. A ritual, by definition, is, quote, an act or series of acts regularly repeated in a set and precise manner, end quote. For the Christian, one of our most important rituals is communion. In the secular realm, let us use the presidential inaugural ritual as an example. Highly ordered ushering in of a new regime, with precise actions done in order to hand off power from one dynasty to the next. Most of modern society has taken for granted the powerful impacts and effects that rituals have upon our lives. Our overlords, however, are not among them. The damage that these weapons have done to the American psyche cannot be understated. Like perhaps no other mass ritual has, the nuclear hoax unleashed an incredibly potent fear spell that still weaves its sorcerous snares around mankind's mind. Instead of celebrating a merciful end to the hostilities of World War II, the world was immediately plunged into an even more terrifying reality. American children were subjected to decades of scaremongering and fear-based rituals. The duck and cover drill. Our media our politicians, our movies, and our shows have relentlessly engaged in shameless, relentless fear porn designed to instill that same fear into each subsequent generation. This fear has continually been used to goad the American populace into ill-conceived wars and to justify endless military spending. The looming threat of nuclear annihilation has been embedded into our collective consciousness, not just in America, but across the world. These are not weapons of mass destruction, but of mass deception. Many of the most iconic events throughout the last century are sophisticated psychological operations and deeply imbued with occult symbology and spiritual significance. These malignant psychodramas can only be described as a mass occult ritual, what essentially amounts to an elaborate spell. These spells are deployed to bend reality to the occultist's will, and they are transpiring not only with frightening regularity but increasing frequency. Astrological confluences, symbolic numerology, and pagan holidays are embedded into these rituals for a specific purpose. The more symbolic references the occultists can make to their chosen demonic entity, the more powerful the spell. If the Coincidence Zone series has made anything clear, it's that we are ruled by a criminally insane cartel, hell-bent 
on twisting humanity to their dark end. Or, I guess you can continue to believe it's all a mere coincidence. Quote, All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. Arthur Schopenhauer. End quote. <laughs>